Good morning, everyone. This is Valley Free Radio. You're tuned to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM on the air and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, a talk show with a focus on rarely discussed elements of everyday life. And I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me. This show airs every Sunday at 12 noon. And yes, the time of this show did change. You're not imagining it. It used to start at 11 and go from 11 to 12, and it now starts at 12 noon. So please make a note of that. My guest for today is John Van Note. I met John through a mutual friend in East Hampton, and I didn't know much about him. All I knew was that he had a studio in Holyoke. I had no idea what what was in that studio, <laughs> and John did not say. It was a mystery. So last Wednesday, I, I got to go to his studio in the Baustein building, a building owned by Susanna and Dirk Affer Roth. I think that's how you say their name. A really cool building converted into giant art studios in Holyoke. And John's studio was chock full of interesting things, both John's colorful artworks, his wooden animal carvings, a cow with a giant curling pink tongue licking its own nose, a goat, an assortment of zany sun faces, or at least that's how I describe them, a group of giant penguins, a huge life-size polar bear covered in white electric lights, an ark in progress, and I said ark, A-R-K, and all of the things John has collected over the years from yard sales and antique markets. He calls himself an accumulator. He collects tchotchkes like odd porcelain animal figurines and black and white photos and more. His studio is filled with what you could describe as folk art or folkish art and more. It's kind of like a child's treasure trove or a child's paradise to walk into that studio because there's so much to see. And there's much more to John, too, than what I'm, I'm talking about. He's also a creative writer who posts his photos and writings online, and he really likes stories. So thank you for joining me, John. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you don't like to be called an artist, and yet you definitely do make art. Can you tell me why? I mean, I would be fine if somebody called me an artist. Uh, it's just that I don't necessarily want to go around proclaiming myself an artist. I mean, my sister's an artist, and a very good one, but I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just the younger brother who tagged along. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to go proclaiming yourself as an artist. You always thought of your sister as more of the artist? Uh, yeah, I mean, my parents really treated her as the one who had the artistic talent, and she got the... There was a Polish woman who had an a studio upstairs in a building in my hometown and Judith got to go and have art lessons and I didn't get to go Mm -hmm. and I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And you don't really like the whole sort of uh, proclamation and the label of saying you're an artist. Uh, I don't like all the, everything that comes with being an artist, the artist statements and all this, um, um, verbiage that comes out of it i mean to me you shouldn't have to explain it and Mm -hmm. if you have to explain it in any great detail uh you lose the focus of it Mm -hmm. and uh not everybody i'm sure would agree with that yeah that's fine yeah it seems like sometimes the artist statement is supposed to be so sophisticated and kind of can come off sort of pretentious I like to think of myself as a rustic, 
I'm not an outsider artist. I have met a few outsider artists, and they are very distinctive, and I would never claim to be that. I don't know that I could call myself a folk artist. Um, I have, you know, a, a university education, and I've, I have mm-hmm. been to art museums and taken art, art history classes, and yeah. so... You know, I have a fair amount of schooling. Right. Now, I know a little about your story because we talked a lot at your studio, and it's pretty involved about how you got into making and collecting art. And the part I find most interesting is the fact that you had a very different life for many years as a chef, and you even traveled around working as a, as a chef. But then you broke away from that life completely. You told me that a number of dramatic things happen. You went through a a bad breakup. You moved to North Carolina and started caring for your ailing mother. You were unemployed and struggling during the recession. And for some reason, you started going to antique markets. So tell me more about this time and what got you hooked on collecting and making art. Oh, well, it did start back in Missouri um, when um, I did have a bad breakup. And, and, uh, I was sort of in mourning for a summer, and I, <laughs> I, I, my therapy was going to to uh, yard sales, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I think I told you I went to eighty-two yard sales in one day's time, and I just which bought. seems impossible, but yeah. okay. I bought <laughs> junk, and I never spent more than five dollars, and it was very therapeutic. And then I'd go to work at twelve o'clock, mm-hmm. and I collected all this stuff. And one day, I, I bought this little house and it looked like the house that was on top of Noah's Ark and I thought oh I should make myself an ark Mm -hmm. and that was kind of the beginning and I'm not sure I was even buying photographs at that point Mm -hmm. Um, but I worked in a frame shop and the guys in the frame shop encouraged me to look at snapshots as snapshots and consider the object itself Mm -hmm. and that got me started and I started buying photographs and I remember counting them one day and I had 70 old photos and I'm like wow I got a lot Mm -hmm. and now I probably have like Mm 70,000. And it seemed like with the ARC is interesting that project and how that's evolved because you also bought a lot of tchotchkes with animal did they often have, were they often animal figurines yeah, of some I, kind? I wanted an ark that was like big. I wanted, I wanted it to be like overwhelming. Like I, if there was a real ark, it was mm-hmm. like you, you were like blown away by it. And you'd see these little dinky arcs in the, in the, uh, you know, like a flea market. And um, it would be like, you know, 20 pairs of animals and it'd be about the size of a shoebox and I wanted something huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it also, what I was thinking is that um, when you started to buy and make animal, like um, animal figures and animal faces or animal sculptures, is, isn't that linked to your ARC project? Uh, well, it was for a while, but after a while I realized I didn't want Noah's Ark. I mm-hmm. wanted my Ark. Mm-hmm. And on my Ark, everybody would be welcome. And uh, there would be animals and there would be, you know, it would just be a fun mm-hmm. place to be. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there would be like bands and parties and <laughs> and uh, maybe not quite 
what things were like on Noah's Ark. Right. And do you want to tell me more about, um, so you when you, you were going through this rough time, um, I'm just curious about what got you to start making art, too. I know at your studio you showed me a framed black and white photo of a man on a, or I think it looked like a woman, but you said a man on a water slide, and the photo shows the person from the back going down the slide with his arms up in the air. You said this image had a big impact on you. Uh, well, that was at a certain point in my, my career as a chef. And uh, I had been the acting executive chef at a big hotel. And, and they didn't hire me to be the, full, the new chef. And uh, the new chef who did come in uh, was less than thrilled about my presence. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't fire me because my AGM liked me, uh, but she didn't see Your it. what liked you? Associate, uh, uh, assistant general manager. Oh, okay. And so I was sort of like just the fifth wheel at that point. She didn't really care what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to go to on vacation, and I thought, well, I'll go to Iowa. I'd never been to Iowa. And, um, and I went up to Iowa by myself specifically to drive around and look for photos and just see interesting things, but mostly to look for photos. And I was in, um, I forget what the name of town is. It's a little historic town on some historic river. And I found this photo in the back of this shop. And it is, it's this boy, and you can't quite tell what he's doing. He does have his arms up in the air like he's, celebrating a victory and when you look at it you finally figure out that he's on this wooden water slide and down below is this actually it's like the Schuylkill River Mm -hmm. and there are trees that enclose the whole thing and I love the photo from the first second I saw it Mm -hmm. but the more I thought about it I thought well this is like Dante this is like the dark wood I'm, I was probably about 40 years old, yeah. and I'm thinking, you know, I've been living life wrong. I just need to throw my arms up in the air. I can see where I'm going, mm-hmm. um, but I just need to celebrate life and enjoy life and uh, not stress, mm-hmm. and, and I, it really was a turning point in my, in my life, mm-hmm. and it's my favorite photograph. Yeah, I think that's a really great story. And so it was a turning point because then you started to get uh, spend more time with the things that you're that really attracted you the most. It sounds like. Uh, yeah, my sister got me on Flickr, and I'm a big uh, fan of Flickr. And I started posting my photos on F- Flickr, mm-hmm. and I did in conjunction with my photos. I did a lot of writing, mm-hmm. a lot of storytelling. St- stories drawn from my own mm-hmm. life right and um i gained a bit of notoriety on Flickr. Mm-hmm. uh ransom riggs the fellow who wrote the miss peregrine book uh connected with me on is Flickr. notoriety good or bad oh uh, well it has <laughs> it has its upsides and its downsides uh, i guess okay i always thought notoriety meant something negative, like negative fame, but then I hear people using it for a positive. So anyway, just that's a little tangent. So 
But I'm, what I'm wondering is, is this sort of what made you start making art? Or is it were you always making art before this? Well, I don't know. I mean, the first big piece of art I made was the polar bear. And I don't know why I made the polar bear. I just... I tell, was, tell our listeners what the polar bear is. What it, uh, or basic, just give us a visual for it. Well, it's a life-size polar bear. It's like eight feet long. And it's made out of... Wood that I picked mm-hmm. up off the street. You know, yeah. it's scrap wood. There was yeah. tons of scrap wood. And I, and I made it in this apartment that was about as big as this studio here. Right. And uh, sawdust all over the place. And, mm-hmm. and then it comes apart in 10 pieces. And I took it down the street to my mother's house and put it out at Christmas time. It has twenty nine. Yeah, go ahead. It has twenty nine hundred white lights on it. Yeah, it's got those electric white lights. So I really wish I could see it all put together. It's going to be the first thing that I try to get set up in a studio. Excellent! Wow. And are you going to make your studio open to the public at some point? I hope to have hours by appointment, and certainly I hope that there will be open houses, and uh, I hope people will come and and. You know, yeah. I, I love talking to people. Yeah, great. Bring themselves and bring their stories. <laughs> yeah. And so what you showed, you told me about the water slide and you showed me that picture. It really kind of uh, resonated with me because, you know, I've had the similar feelings at times, like when you get to half your life or even past the halfway mark of what could be your full lifetime. And you think, well, there's this struggle always to kind of stay on the straight and narrow in terms of doing the more conventional thing, having like a nine to five job or whatever that has full benefits and security. Security is a big one, right? Or just casting that aside and doing a crazy, wacky, but amazingly rewarding and thing that you're doing. So... You know, do you have well, thoughts on it? Well, it is very rewarding in all senses except monetarily. <laughs> so maybe that'll come someday. Yeah. So it's like living more on the edge in a way, which is sort of like the, the person with their arms up on the slide heading down. Like, Or maybe you were thinking that in terms of a lifetime that we know that we're going to die. We know about mortality. So why not really live life to the fullest uh, up until that moment. Well, I think you have to keep your mortality. You got to be aware of it, but you got to you, you you have to transcend it, or else you'll you'll just get stuck on it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know you read Mark Twain and you, he talks about snags all the time. I mean, those snags and Huck Finn are both real and metaphorical, and mm-hmm. and they're 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 out there. And mm-hmm. I don't want to get caught up on any snags. I just want to. I just want to go. Oh, okay. That's how you're looking at it. Okay. Because I was thinking about it in terms of mortality. Like you start at the top of the slide and you are going down. Well, well, certainly. That's where he's going. You Mm -hmm. know, I think I mentioned Mm -hmm. E.B. White's essay, uh, Once More to the Lake. And he talks about uh, when when you're going back to the dock, if you cut your engine off at the perfect moment, you will just coast right into the dock. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people are very lucky in their lives that they cut the engine just at the right moment. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know. And they don't end up hitting the dock? They don't end up hitting the dock. It's a perfect landing. Mm-hmm. And I'm a guy 
who just spent seven years with a dying mother. Yeah. And and helping her through mm-hmm. those very difficult years. Yeah. And and uh, not everybody can achieve that, but I think my mother did as good a job as she could. Uh huh. That your mother did as good a job as she could, or that well, she was you bedridden did. for seven years. Yeah. But yeah. But she had her faculties, uh-huh. so we, you know, I, I read to her, and I, I'm probably one of the few people in the world who read the entire Pickwick Papers. Oh, aloud! Wow. To, to his mother. That's a long book. Yeah. Dickens, yeah. And um, did, you told me that you wanted to, did you want to share some, you had a metaphor for the relationship that you were dealing with? You mentioned that to me on an email. If you don't remember, that's okay. Without using her name. Oh. The breakup. I, well, I just, you know, when you say you had a crazy relationship, people don't have a good idea what constitutes a crazy relationship mm-hmm. and and my crazy relationship was a relationship where my significant other would be would be out lying on the railroad track and the train would be coming and i'd run outside and i'd, I'd be like freaking out and she'd stand up and start throwing the ballast rock at me and oh, okay wow and she had a good arm and she didn't try to miss. <laughs> so you were trying to rescue you, and she was trying to uh, attack you with rocks. Yeah. And you tried to rescue her. So, That's interesting. You know, that that was a very traumatic period of my, to- my life. And, yeah. I, and I guess I had all these holes, not just from that relationship, but from my life before. Mm-hmm. And I, like, as people do, I tried to fill up those holes with things Uh, uh and now i think i'm trying to figure out how to use Mm -hmm. that accumulation for a positive purpose yeah i think that's really interesting because um obviously this is a very widespread issue that and everybody's on the spectrum i think especially in the u.s of on the sort of hoarding spectrum um of kind of gathering collecting and buying or whatever too many too much stuff and but it what's interesting is you told me you call yourself an accumulator and that you now have this sort of master plan for how you're going to put your stuff into use for something positive yes uh although life may have another master plan (laughs) Uh, i saw orson wells on johnny carson one time and johnny was like Oh, so I hear you were in Spain and you were staying in this castle and lightning struck the castle and all your stuff got burned up. And Johnny said, I bet you were really bummed out. And Orson Welles said, I've never felt so free in all my life. Wow. And and so I don't think he who dies with the most toys wins. Right. I think she who dies with the fewest toys uh-huh. wins. Yeah. That, that's a, I like that line. I've got to quote you on that. Okay. That's great. I've got to jot that down. Um, yeah, because it's, it's like our, our, our lives are, Im, are impermanent anyway. So how can any object be permanent? They're just passing through our hands from one person to another, really. That's how I view it. And yet we still form these attachments to things. Well, 
it's hard to give yourself over to the experiential and just think this day, this moment, this group of people I'm with Mm -hmm. uh, is my life. And I think our culture probably encourages us to make things and, and do things and have achievements. And, you know, if you've been to a foreign countries, like you've been to Canada or, or Germany or, or Scotland, I mean, just being with your, your, your fellow human beings is much more mm-hmm. significant, I yeah. think. And, and yeah. I think maybe they're they're doing a little better job. Having moved from North Carolina, I think maybe you guys up here doing a little better job of it. Oh, really? Of being more in, in touch with people and in the moment? Yeah, I mean, just people walk. They 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 stop and let other people cross the street. They they're. I mean, I I'm blown away with how friendly people mm-hmm. are up here. Yeah. When you were talking about um, waking up and being in the moment, I was thinking about this morning when I did yoga. This is just a brief little story that uh, there was a dog that barks at me kind of viciously. And I decided to stop doing yoga and just say hello to the dog and the man. And the dog, of course, really warmed up to me quickly. It was a French bulldog and was like rolling around and letting me pet its belly and everything. And it made me really happy, you know, just connecting. And I think that's one thing that happens with animals, especially is... um, and it's interesting because you do a lot of your work is really focused on animals too. So, yeah, I mean, who cannot like animals? Right. There's there's a woman I really like in North Carolina, and she's great, and she has a wonderful garden, and she doesn't like to eat fruit. <laughs> and it's like, how could how could that be? You know, something yeah. in your life. How could you not like <laughs> fruit? Yeah. So how could you not like animals? Uh huh. That's true. Um, all right. Well, I think. Uh, let's see. What else did I want to ask you? I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the arc that you mentioned. Um, it looks like I don't know how did you probably describe it better, but to me, it looked a little bit like an elegant wooden canoe, but smaller than a full size canoe. And it seems like the animals you make and collect, you know, as I mentioned before, kind of connect, relate to that. And you said that environmental awareness often propels your work, like the focus on the polar bear and the penguins. Can you tell me more about that, about how you're responding to our current crisis with climate change as an artist, or not as an artist, as an uncategorizable person, in terms of the the arc that you're making? Uh, well, the the arc has evolved greatly since I started thinking about it. I mean, I bought this little house, and it was probably eight or ten years before I got the arc made. And we're saying A R K, everybody, as in Noah's Ark. Although Noah's this would be arc, John's Ark. It's well, it's <laughs> Mister Waterslide's okay. Ark. Mister Waterslide is my Flickr name, right? And you can see the arc on Flickr under Mr. Waterslide's oh, arc. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so, I, 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 first of all, I, I said, well, I'm not just going to limit myself to two. I'm going to have as many as I want, as many as I can get on there. As many arcs? Uh, you know, like if I have 100 bears, there'll be 100 bears on there. Oh, okay. It's so, not going to be t- pairs. Yeah, that's cruel to all the other animals. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, that was the first change I made. And then um, 
I started thinking, well, what you know, Noah had a limited number of people on his ark, and I'm like, I want everybody, everybody who wants to get on the ark and like behave themselves. But how does this connect to inv- climate change in your um, mind? Well, is it the flooding? <laughs> you know what's th- what's happening I in the think world. Part of the emphasis was knowing that there's going to be so many species that will be lost. Yeah, uh, it's it's this sense of loss and saving what we can. Mm-hmm. As most, I think every each person should make himself or herself responsible for saving all that she can Mm -hmm. and so that was that was that was the first impulse and then um i started thinking about the whole idea of who is going to suffer under climate change Mm -hmm. and if you look at the world like how many people live in bangladesh they're like 150 million people in bangladesh Mm -hmm. Bangladesh, the country, is is low-lying. They will suffer worse uh, cataclysmic yeah. cyclones, and then the whole country will disappear. Mm-hmm. Now, where are those people going to go? Right. Uh, people, people of color mm-hmm. are going to suffer, and people of, of lesser uh, financial... Oh, definitely. They will suffer more, mm-hmm. and we will suffer less mm-hmm. and there's some people who are planning not to suffer at all and it seems like the people at the top uh, including our current administration are not too worried about their suffering because they're sitting pretty with their cash flow well mm-hmm. exactly and then uh, then i started thinking well i found a guy to make the ark mm-hmm. uh, i didn't make the boat mm-hmm. i didn't have that technical skill a 92 year old man named henry kendall made mm-hmm. the ark wow and, uh, but it's not finished yet. It needs, uh, it needs shiplap siding. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use, uh, pigment like artist pigment, but mm-hmm. natural pigments, not, mm-hmm. not artificial pigments. And I'm going to, I have <laughs> over 3000 pieces of popsicle sticks that I've cut the ends off. Wow, and it's perfect. It fits perfect to make the shiplap siding, and I'm gonna uh, put the pigment on there in a rough approximation of uh, the various proportions of human pigmentation around the world, mm-hmm. from uh, very light skin to very dark skin, right? Yeah. And and then I'm gonna throw them in a box, and they'll be all mixed up, and. And there'll be other things on the outside. Oh, I thought you were going to literally show, like, have the gradations go from dark to light. But what you're saying is that you're going to just throw them and mix them up. So it's like, yeah, I want to, you know, I mean, I want the arc to be like New York City. And I want, I want uh, no segregation whatsoever. I I want everybody together. Mm -hmm. I think New York City does have some segregation. Oh, it but certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting idea. And um, so you sort of, you through this project, this art project, you'll be making people, you want to, your goal is to make people more aware of this crisis, right? Right. And, and to make 
people understand that we are all in it together. Mm-hmm. I see. And now I'm thinking I'm also going to incorporate uh, my photographs in some way, in some fashion, mm-hmm. into the buildings that will be on the ark. Right. Yeah. So there won't actually be animals Oh, yeah, there'll be animals, too. There's going to be all kinds of things. Oh, maybe in the pictures. Well, I don't know. I I want to make this hotel. It's going to be Uh, for my sister. Okay, I have a a hotel. Wow, but before we get to it, let me ask you something. Will this really be able to float on water, this ark? I haven't haven't put it out there yet. (sighs) Wondering uh, if it will be buoyant. Yeah. It's got a lot of holes in it now, so it'll, right. have to, it'll take some work on yeah. my part. Yeah. Wow. 3,000 pieces of popsicle stick. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think we're going to take a little break now. This is a good time to do that. And we're going to listen to a song that John picked out, and I'll tell you more about later, followed, followed by some announcements. But we'll be back soon, so stay tuned, everyone.
A Baha'i Perspective, hosted by Warren Odess Gillette, is a weekly radio broadcast of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. You can listen to the broadcast on Saturdays at 10 a.m. on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. That's Valley Free Radio. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. Nature is a non-harmful medication shown to get you out of your head and into the moment. Nature is recommended for people of all ages. In rare cases, being in nature may cause you to wake up to the mundane absurdity of consumerism and self-centeredness. Don't be alarmed if nature gives you a sense that you're connected to everything. Nature turned my life around, got me back on track. If every time you are in nature, you think, gosh, I really should spend more time in nature... Then spend more time in nature. Ask your doctor if nature's right for you. Nature is inexpensive, easily accessible, and available to you now. And we're back. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface, and you're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ Northampton at 103.3 FM. And we're also live streaming right now on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And we just heard a song by Over the Rhine that my guest John Van Note, who's sitting with me right now in the studio, picked up, picked out. It's called How Long Have You Been Stoned? John said it could be a pro-drug song or an anti-drug song. You decide. Or maybe it has nothing to do with drugs. John is a kind of modern folk artist, or I would call him that, although he refuses to be categorized. He's also a collector or a an accumulator, as he likes to say, of fanciful tchotchkes and vintage photographs of personal significance. So, John, let's talk about those photos and those tchotchkes. You told me that many of them hold some personal significance for you in terms of your family background, which was often painful. And I know you showed me the lovely porcelain tchotchke of the Dutch children with linked arms, two girls with a boy in the middle. And you said that they reminded you of your of you and your two sisters, and, and one of whom who died. And I know that you have a Dutch name, too. So what role does your family history have in the making of your art? And I know that's a huge question, but I'm just thinking like, you know, whatever comes to mind, or if you have an example of that, that would be great to know. Uh, well, I've, I've just noticed, I mean, I'll, I'll have a photo, and it'll resonate with me, and I won't think about what, yeah. what it is in that photo, and then one day I'll look at it, and it'll be like uh, a boy with an older sister and a younger sister, and I'm... and. I, I had I have an older sister yeah. and I had a younger sister. Yeah. And um I do have what I would call a checkered family history, but I figure everybody has a checkered mm-hmm. family history. Yeah. I I grew I'm a child of the 50s and 60s. Uh I grew up in Ohio uh in what I would call a sort of John Cheever like uh, oh. existence wow. which to me is a a beautiful surface mm-hmm. with 
a lot of dreck and effluvia mm-hmm. uh, under the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was uh, an internist and a cardiologist, um, and he was very successful. We lived in a small Ohio town, um, and for the first six or eight years of my life, I thought that you know life was a paradise. Mm-hmm. And then, at a certain point, things fell apart. Mm-hmm. My my mother had tried for years to have another child mm-hmm. um, and uh, finally uh, we we did have a third child she had a little girl Wendy and Wendy was a beautiful child mm-hmm. but she had a heart murmur mm-hmm. and um, so I'm sure that my father felt this the irony of this very yeah. keenly he was he was buddies with the guys up at the Cleveland Clinic, so mm-hmm. you know uh, they. This was right at the time when they first came out with open heart surgery, mm-hmm. and and uh, your father's a cardi with a cardiologist. He was a cardiologist. And he has a daughter I mean, with a heart murmur. Right, yeah. and and he was he was my father was a wonderful diagnostician. Uh, and people would come up to me on the street and say, oh, your father was listening to my heart on Friday. And on Saturday, he had me in a in an ambulance going to Cleveland. And on Monday, I was being operated on, and he saved my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but my father uh, was a perfectionist, and he could never achieve that perfection that he sought. And that led him into all sorts of problems problems that other doctors and other professions have but my father was a drug addict and so here we had this wonderful child that was bringing our family together at the same time that my father's life was unraveling uh wendy went to the cleveland clinic for open heart surgery how old was she she was just too much short of her third birthday Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure they put it off as long as they could. This was like six months after the first open heart surgery. Wow. I believe. It was very early. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that, uh, George Crowell Jr., who was the head of the clinic, was one of the doctors who performed the surgery. Um, but it wasn't successful. My father did not ever uh, express any bitterness he didn't actually do the surgery. He did not. Right. He did not perform the surgery, mm-hmm. but he knew all those doctors. Mm-hmm. He never said a word, a critical word about them, but I'm sure that he was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. We all loved Wendy intensely. The heart again, yeah. right? And yeah, I mean, you know, my father once in the, in in the bedroom, he took a belt and he showed me the the systole and diastole whatever it is the two the the mm-hmm. the, the rhythm of the heart i mean mm-hmm. he was he was totally focused on the heart mm-hmm. um so how do i so he used the belt to like make the sound of the yeah heart? You, okay you can bring oh. it together and make it snap I and see. it'll make okay. a sound all right and uh so i i mean it's hard to get from that to my my art and it's hard to understand how that 
effect. Well, of course, you have the photo on Flickr of your father as a little boy, and you wrote, rewrote about it, and so that's that's art, right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, I can look at a photo, and I can become intensely involved in a photo. I don't try to fantasize or make up stories about a photo. Mm-hmm. I just try to look at a photo and mm-hmm. and understand if it's just a little bit or a lot mm-hmm. about that person. Who mm-hmm. who was that person? Mm-hmm. Uh, l- let me digress just for okay. a second. <laughs> sure. I was outside of a, a house one time. Didn't even say it was a flea market. And and I went up and I knocked on the door and I was getting ready to leave because nobody came to the door. And this old man came around the side of the house and he said, he said, what do you want? I said, I'm looking for photos. He mm-hmm. said, what kind of photos? And I told him. He said, oh, I have this bag of photos. I was just getting ready to take to the dump. Uh. And uh, he said, you can have them if you want. And so he gave me a bag of photos. I mean, hundreds of photos. So I took it home and I looked through it. And it was all the photos that illustrated a relationship from the start of the relationship to the end of the relationship. And wow. And Fascinating. no doubt the guy had bought the contents of a storage unit mm-hmm. and the photos were in the storage unit wow. and he had no use for me. He was uh-huh. going to throw them away. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could, you could see the happiness in the beginning mm-hmm. The the, wow. the person was like, you know, took the kids to the zoo and, you know, the, the woman had children. And then you could see the relationship start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and there were like glamour shots where uh, she was trying to, you know, spark interest again. And then at the very bottom of the bag, there was a newspaper clipping and it said, I, John Doe will not be responsible for the debts of Jane Doe from this day forward. I mean, it was a... Wow. And, and it's like... It's yeah. like... I don't know. It's just this connection. Yeah. Connection to other people. Uh, uh, it's almost like... It's sort of like... Superman and, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. That really opens my eyes up to, you know, what's so tantalizing about collecting photographs is that you can see, you could see a a course of an entire relationship or, you know, someone's life. I mean, you have your own photos, you can have that, but how it's interesting, it almost reminds me of living in, I grew up in New York City, and you would just see little glimpses of people in the windows, and I was always fascinated by that and curious, like, about these anonymous lives that are going on just like mine behind walls and even above and below me and beside me in apartments, Um, or you hear a stray shout in the courtyard, you feel like, oh, they're having an argument, you know, they sound sort of like we sound when we have an argument, but who are they? Anyway, that just sort of comes to my mind when I hear you talking about discovering this trove of photographs. Yeah, I mean, have, haven't you ever been on a subway and another subway is going the other way? Oh, yeah. And you look out mm-hmm. and somebody in that other car is looking out and your eyes meet. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the only contact you will ever have with that person yeah. in your life. Right. And does it mean nothing? 
Mm-hmm. What does it mean? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But I, I love those moments. Right. And maybe even finding those photographs is a form of contact, even though, of course, the, the person who made the photos, who's in the photos, will never know how they affected you when you found those photos. You know what I'm saying? I would have to tell you, not every photo is created equal. However. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you could look at a whole album, yeah. and there will be nothing, nothing there. Mm-hmm. And you can look at another album, mm-hmm. and every photo will mm-hmm. have some spark, yeah. some essence of of life yeah. that is thrilling. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been thinking about photos and just film ph- photography and how I miss uh, pictures that you can hold in your hand. And I know that I could take my digital camera somewhere but it just seems complicated, and I've never been satisfied with that. And there's something about the ease with which you can take one shot after another on a digital camera that makes it seem somehow... I just never get to that point of printing a photo. And there's something so beautiful. Like you say, like a good photo is rare. So if you had a film camera, you would have to take a lot of bad photos and not know that some of them are bad. But then there'd be an occasional good photo that you could hold in your hand and you could mail that photo. Like I was writing a letter to my niece and I wanted to send a photo. But I so I put an image from, you know, that I had on my camera, but it's just an onto a Word document. But it's not the same as holding a, a picture in your hand. The ubiquity of digital images is such that th- there's this tremendous devaluation mm-hmm. of each individual image right um because it used to be that there were billions of images but now i'm sure there are trillions and quadrillions Mm -hmm. of images yeah i mean it's sort of the beauty of it but it's also the curse of it because you can keep taking picture after picture without you know spending more money or too much energy to get a shot you like but do you ever value that picture the way you do when it's a, a a printed picture that can sort of actually get yellow over time you know that it can fade i would say no that's (laughs) that's just my opinion yeah um let's see what else do i want to ask you well we're getting toward the end of the show but tell me what's your plan we sort of touched on it before um and you said that you would like to be able to make your studio available to the public at some point um is there a way, well, you said people can find you online through Flickr. Is that right? Uh, you, can, you can search Mr. Waterslide, which is all one word, lowercase, mm-hmm. or Mr. Waterslide's arc, and you could see some of my folk art uh, on both of those uh, places. You said folk art. Okay, sorry. Okay, <laughs> all right. Bingo, I guess. You, you win. Um, it's okay. I don't, I'm not trying to win. I just think it's interesting. I got it. I intend to get a website uh, as, as soon as I can figure out, as a 20th century person, how mm-hmm. one does that in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Baustein building is on Main Street in, in Holyoke, and it is a really wonderful building. There are lots of people moving into the building and uh, I very much like the owners of the building and the guys who work there and I'm a big booster of the Baustein building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't pronounce it right, Baustein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing 
building with huge studios and well, giant windows. Holyoke and, is a pretty cool place. Yeah. I mean, Holyoke, the first planned industrial community in the world. Mm-hmm. And and when you oh. just look at those canals, I mean, that's, yeah. you, that's pretty wild. Yeah. And, you know, this this boy from southeastern Ohio didn't even know there was such a thing. So, mm-hmm. hmm. Well, let's see. We still have a little more time. Let me see. I know that you're a creative writer and you write stories from your own life. Um, and I'm wondering if you feel the way I do about something. Now, because you mentioned some of the difficulties of your past and your childhood that you sometimes write about. So when I write, I know I can't exactly heal myself with my writing and that's not really my motivation but I can express some truth about it that gets revealed in the writing, though it's usually not the truth that I anticipate. And I'm just wondering, maybe just expressing something true, however painful, is healing in itself. Would you agree with that? Uh, well, I have always been very open about my family traumas and <laughs> probably have spent a lot of time uh, laying my stories off on people who didn't necessarily want to hear them. <laughs> uh, and I think I've come to a pretty good place in my life by, uh, you know, the constant repetition of these things. And, you know, the 50s were a time when people didn't talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. So, so I think the more talk about about things, mm-hmm. the difficult things, mm-hmm. uh, the the racism mm-hmm. and the the economic injustice mm-hmm. and and sexism, sexism, and all the problems that that we have in our society. The more open we are about them, and the more you know, it'll be difficult. It'll be painful, mm-hmm. uh, but. There will be progress, mm-hmm. and it, I've found that in my own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I, I thought of a metaphor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Go if ahead. I can, if a metaphor if, for what? For where I am. Okay. In my life right All now. All right. Let's hear. It. I feel like I'm dancing with happiness, mm-hmm. but I'm keeping her at arm's length because. I'm not quite sure if I trust her oh. yet, <laughs> but I, but I'm very happy to be. I mean, she's beautiful and she's she's uh-huh. witty and she's she's tall and friendly. Uh-huh. But I'm always a little bit Suspicious. suspect, uh-huh. uh, and I I hope you're that, suspect. Like no, I'm not suspect. Yeah, you you're know, suspicious. I, I yeah. mean. In my life, in mm-hmm. the past, yeah. I've gotten myself in trouble when mm-hmm. I let myself get really happy. Uh, I yeah. do something stupid to mm-hmm. mess it up. Mm-hmm. So I want to be very careful. You want to be know? cautious? And is that how you feel about your your project and your plan with your studio? Uh, or in well, general? My, my friend Stacy Waldman is somebody who just does stuff. She Yay, Stacy. She gets up every day and she she makes the phone calls she needs to make. Mm-hmm. She mails off the photos that people have bought. She she's all about. She's picking. a collector of photos. We she's a dealer of photos. Dealer, but she right. takes care of business. Mm-hmm. I want to be much better 
about taking care of business right in my new life i see okay well it's good it's probably they say that if you state your intention there's some power to that i am hereby stating my (laughs) intentions on valley free radio yes excellent okay so this is a good place to end on an up note and you've been listening to under the surface I'm Amy Landau, and I've been talking to John Van Note, a guy who likes to make art and collect art. I'll just put it simply that way. John, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It's been a pleasure having you here. I was delighted to be invited and delighted to be here. Great. And thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next Sunday at 12 noon. 12, not 11. And if you're not able to listen on Sunday at that time, you can always find my past shows on Facebook at Under the Surface Radio Program. Just do a search for that and it'll come right up. I'm going to leave you with one more song from the band that John shared with me called Over the Rhine. Enjoy the rest of your day, everybody. Yeah.